Hello there, you're listening to the Box Office Show. I'm Ryan Hill. And I'm Dylan Johnson. Today we're going to be talking about the box office numbers from last weekend and our box office predictions for this upcoming weekend. We're also going to be doing the first part of our Ridley Scott director analysis. Next month, when House of Gucci releases, we will do our second part. Today, however, we'll be looking at Ridley Scott's newest release that came out this past weekend, The Last Duel, as well as his period epic piece from 2000, Gladiator, and his sci-fi classic, Blade Runner. being quick with it, brother i miss the banter i miss yeah. talking about doing yoga showing <laughs> well, off my done any yoga i haven't well there you go that's I why talking we can't talk about, about it talk. if i start doing yoga you promise to bring back the banter oh uh, sure okay. it's a win-win i'll do it that's <laughs> true you get double benefits from it we get the the first 20 minutes of the show is me showing off new yoga poop moves <laughs> to, to the audience <laughs> to the audience that can't see anything <laughs> That's why you got to bring in a visual component and do the video again. I know. Just I'm recording the, uh, video now, I think. Why? So that we can do another trailer. I liked it. it you're not cool. even doing any yoga. How are you supposed to appeal to the masses if so you're this not is, this showing off your rump? <laughs> Jesus. It's too small. It's Eggs too small of a screen. Wow. I don't know if Pushing I can the headphones on. continue after that. Yeah, no, we're going to have now. to postpone this show for another week <laughs> or so. Thank you all for coming in this week anyway, but we'll be back next week for more Ridley Scott. <laughs> all right, let's get into the news. We got quite a bit of it. We'll go through it as quickly as possible. The DC Fandome. Now, that's a pun that I can understand. Netflix, with your Dunham thing. Uh, the Fandome, they showed a bunch of stuff. I mean, mostly just like teasers and pictures from... Many of their upcoming projects will go one by one for some of the major ones. The Flash, did you see that teaser? Uh, I saw, I think I saw the images of it. I don't think I saw the teaser teaser. I think I saw like scrolling through my feed. I saw it, but I didn't click on it. I, I have a general idea of what it looks like. Yes. And your thoughts. It looks all right. Yeah, I'm, I'll, I'll watch it. I'm game. Sure. I mean, I'll watch it too, but are you excited? Did your excitement level go up? Huh, it's about the same. <laughs> okay. Um, I mean, I'm, it's just, I'm learning no, new information here. Yes, Michael Keaton is in it. Yes, Ben Affleck is in it. Yes, uh, who, what's his name? Who plays The Flash? Ezra Miller. Thank you. Yeah, Ezra Miller's in it twice. Yeah, I knew that. Uh, I'm not like, I, I get I get to see. What about the suit? suit? Yeah, it's yeah. cool, I, mean, I guess. Something. Yeah. I just, you know, I'm not learning a lot of new stuff. Like, it's a cool trailer. It looks cool. It's not, it's just not like. The thing I am super excited for from DC. I don't know. The Flash has never been like my favorite. It's just been like tepid. Gotcha. I think it's pretty cool. I don't know if the teaser was truly effective though in building a hype to general audiences. Because I don't know if the whole thing about they were bringing back previous Batman came across in that teaser. 
like for those mm-hmm. that are in the know, like you and I who already knew about that stuff. Yeah, awesome that makes insiders. sense. Yeah, we can yeah <laughs> we can connect the dots. Um, but the general peeps that don't have connections in the business, yeah, they're not gonna really get too excited. Like I don't know if the significance of it is coming across yet, but we'll see. They'll continue to pump out some more marketing material as we get closer to their release date, and hopefully they will be able to build our excitement and get interest from the general peeps as well. Yep. Another teaser we got was a little clip of Black Adam, which did excite me a little bit. Not a lot, but a little bit. You know, it looks cool. I'm excited to see Dwayne Johnson do something other than play himself all the time. <laughs> right. So I would say my my hype is a little bit stronger for that one than it was before, as opposed to The Flash, which is about the same. Gotcha. For me, I think my levels with Black Adam are the same, wow. but I mean, it's wow. still, it is in the positive. I mean, it is high because I do want to see Dwayne Johnson go for it with this role. It's something he's been wanting to do forever. So hopefully the passion really comes through and it will be a departure from a lot of the blockbuster leading men stuff that he's done recently. So I am excited for that. I wish we would have gotten like an actual video itself a better money shot of him in the yeah i wish we had gotten a money shot of him too yeah in the costume right there with the hood like if he took the hood off Um, no like a money shot okay (laughs) okay (laughs) um (laughs) you're doing that just for the trailer (laughs) for the trailer yeah yeah for those who are listening you'll have no idea what i'm what i'm doing it's very naughty naughty indeed Jerking uh, off into my face. God dang it. <laughs> <laughs> we have Peacemaker, which also had a lot of phallic references in that. Um, mm. John Cena, another wrestler up in the mix. What did you think about this trailer? Did you I see didn't it? see this trailer. My God, what are you doing? I know, I skipped it. It's like I want to save... I know, right? I want to save all of my experience with peacemaker for the actual show peacemaker the only thing i saw was like the brief clip of him coming to the restaurant in the outfit to talk to all the people from (laughs) the movie but that came out like weeks ago so i like i saw that i didn't see the full trailer though i've only seen a few pictures on accident but i'm trying to save all the peacemaker stuff for when i actually watch the show gotcha okay i mean yeah i think it looks good there's John Cena is yet again in tidy whities and he'll be fighting through a house in tidy whities So I suppose that is a draw. Uh, there's also a big plot line with his father. And so it is all but confirmed that James Gunn has immense daddy issues. Because this is what the third... I mean, don't we all? I mean, yeah, but like the third superhero uh, movie slash just any sort of content where that is like the central focus did you not cry at Field of Dreams? No. When he gets fine. to play catch with his dad. No. <laughs> Dang, this took quite a turn from two minutes ago when you were shoving a fake penis in your Yeah, quite a turn to daddy issues. I mean, I feel like they're connected. You know, you're right. Dang, now we're getting psycho analyzing yeah. it here. Yeah. Uh, what okay. would Freud say? Now, moving on, keeping the daddy issues through line, Batman, who has got plenty of issues, uh, this version of him for sure, we got to see 
the first main trailer for the Batman, Robert Pattinson in the lead role. You got Matt Reeves directing. You had to have seen this. What did you think? This one I saw, and this one I am stoked for. It looks oh. awesome. It looks so good. I didn't think my hype could get any higher from the teaser trailer we got a couple months ago, but mm-hmm. damn, dude, it looks so good. It looks so good. It really it's, does look beautiful. From the, from the previews that people have seen, it's three hours long, which I'm sure they're going to cut down. I'm sure they'll cut it down to like two and a half. But it's so right now at this at this stage of the editing process, it's three hours long, and it's just like a full on like horror film, like horror noir mystery. It's gory, it's violent. Robert Pattinson is Batman almost the entire time. Like it's just him being Batman trying to solve a mystery over like the course of a week. It looks very much Batman heavy. Like we got yeah. one or two shots of him as Bruce Wayne. It's such a a cool departure from like the Christopher Nolan naturalism, which is very much like it's it's too naturalism like it's too far in the other direction where it's like this is just what it would be like if it was real as opposed to this which is heavily stylized form of naturalism where it's very much like this is still based on a comic still comic heavy but it's like the darker versions of comics that are Mm -hmm. like naturalistic which is cool and i'm excited for it yeah that talking about some money shots that final scene of him walking up and it's upside down so he's looking like a bat yeah. upside down but he's walking in front of the and it's like jizz in his face yeah <laughs> <laughs> he goes up to he goes up to the penguin and just comes in his face <laughs> and the score hits his crescendo yeah I'm I vengeance <laughs> <laughs> <Ugh. laughs> wow amazing stuff uh, so, so yeah, you excited for was... the Batman trailer <laughs> oh for sure for sure for sure Anyway, in other news, IATSE, which kind of sounds like Yahtzee, has averted its strike. So a couple, what, a week ago or so, the members voted overwhelmingly to use a strike as a bargaining trip chip in their uh, deliberations. And mm-hmm. producers have agreed to many of the demands to avoid any kind of a strike. For those of you who don't know, the IATSE is kind of like Teamsters. They're kind of union for people who are below the line workers in the film industry particularly the people who drive and lift and carry things and things like that. And they have been fighting for better rights, especially for streaming related projects and better compensation and all that as unions often do. And there was almost a strike, which would have been crazy, but it, it was been historic in the over a hundred year, like 120 years, something like that. History of that union would have been the first strike they've ever done. And it yeah. would have absolutely ground Hollywood to a halt. So, yeah, the producers were definitely sweating on that one. And they seem to have caved and have met uh, the union where they where they wanted to be. And so mm-hmm. it hasn't been finalized yet. Like, they haven't actually uh, finished all the negotiations. But for now, the strike has been averted. And it seems like they are going to get a substantial portion of what they were asking for, which is great. We'd love to see it. Yeah. Everybody deserves money, money, money. Exactly, yes. Especially for the hard-ass work they do. Yeah, better working conditions. I mean... The only person that didn't like Teamsters was Cindy Lumet. (laughs) Have you read that book? Did Spencer make you read that book? No. It's Cindy Lumet's book about making movies called Making Movies. And he spends like a chapter just shitting on Teamsters and how much he hates Teamsters. Why? 
he just hates them. He, he just hates but, that they just drive and sit why? around all day because all their their whole job is like to drive and to like transport people. And so right. when they're not doing that, they're just standing around. He's like, these lazy fucks, they don't do anything. We pay them so much money. He just hates Teamsters. You Googling? I'm Googling to confirm that. I mean, IOTSI is not Teamsters. They're two separate things. Well, it's partly team. That's what the T stands for, isn't it? No. Oh, well, International yeah. Alliance for Theater Stage employees or something. Well, Teamsters are definitely part of that. Well, no, they're not. Teamsters are different. Like the film well, God drivers are part of the overall Teamster. Don't you remember Jimmy Hoffa, bro? The Irish. You, you let me say Teamsters like 30 times and I was wrong the whole time. Well, you said only a couple of times. Well, because you said Ionsi, and then I thought you were making a comparison to Teamsters because Teamsters oh. have gone on strike before and they're also union and whatnot. That's why I was confused when you said it would have been historic. I was like, I could have sworn Teamsters have gone on strikes multiple no, no, no. times. Yeah, okay, Ionsi well, is like I'm the clarified. grips and the people like actually the, on set below the line stuff, people yeah. yeah so i was right about that i just thought teamsters were a part of that i forgot that teamsters were actually their own union no, no, no. oh well i guess i'm just not as intelligent as i sound no you're good you just need to brush up on your intro to production but yeah cindy Lumet fucking hates teamsters Dang. <laughs> he did when he was alive well hopefully he appreciated the iatsi people oh yeah i think he did he definitely talked about how much he loved everybody else on set other than Teamsters. <laughs> it was like a, a heavy point he brought in in like the second chapter. One of the Teamsters must have like nearly run him over or something and just got pissed about it. He just like writes that they like stand around and sandwiches all day and don't do anything. And he's like, these fucking Teamsters. Like he literally calls them out and just says it. It's hilarious. Anyway, in other news, Disney has done another Corona shuffle. Not even a Corona shuffle, just a schedule shuffle. So we've got a lot of Almost all of their movies, all of their movies after Spider-Man have moved around a lot, which is weird. Doctor Strange 2 has moved from March 5th to May 6th. Thor 4, Love and Thunder has moved from May 6th to July 8th. Black Panther 2 has moved from July 8th to November 11th. The Marvels have moved from November 11th to February 17th. Quantumania has moved from February 17th of 2023 to July 28th of 2023. And Indiana Jones 5 has moved from July 29th, 2022 to June 30th, 2023. A full year before we get some Indiana Jones. Yeah. Massive delay on that one. And then all the other ones are just, like they shifted down one Marvel slot, except for Guardians of the Galaxy 3, which is holding on to its May 2023 release. Do you, think they, moved, is, yeah. do you think they moved everything down to avoid the Batman in March? Well, no. Of 2023? <laughs> Not... Not, no, not specifically for that. I mean, I'm, because he's vengeance. He's <laughs> gonna come, come all over. He's <laughs> gonna come all I'm over. I'm coming for you. <laughs> I'm coming for you, Doctor Strange. Um, no, it was probably because of during coronavirus when all the production delays happened that yeah. probably you know messed up their schedule, and so them just taking some couple extra months on each of these projects to make sure they're well polished. Um, I think is only going to be helpful. So, yeah, not explicitly because of the Batman, but it does mean that March is like wide open for the Batman if no one else comes in mm -hmm. uh, to challenge him. So, they may that movie may clean up in that March. But yeah, this was quite shocking to see all these changes. We're gonna have to wait yeah. more months to see that Doctor Strange, uh, the multiverse. Mm -hmm. They should probably stop moving Indiana Jones 5. I feel like it would be kind of sad if we watched that movie come out and Harrison Ford was dead. Dude, I he's saw just, a comment. He's just so old. 
a comment where someone said maybe they're trying to get the post-mortem bump of people going to Harrison Ford's I mean, last movie. He's, he's so old. He's crashed like three planes in like the last two years. He got injured like twice on set already. And he's also, got, I mean, coronavirus is still going on. That man is in the danger zone for the COVID population. Why is he on set right now? Like, why are they doing that to him? Just let him retire. Hopefully Harrison Ford will be around by the time we get to see him in Indiana Jones 5. But I mean, it's two years from now almost. We'll, we'll have to see. Anyways, time for our box office breakdown for the week of weekend of October 15th through the 17th. In first place, Halloween absolutely killed with Halloween kills at 49.4 million, making it the number one R-rated opening of the pandemic. No Time to Die came in second with 24 million. That's a 56% drop. It has now crossed the century mark domestically, over 100 million. And worldwide, it is 450 million. So it's still uh, going full steam ahead in the international territories. Unfortunately, it's not going to do as well as I'd hope domestically. But Ooh, oh no, it's because Halloween killed. Yeah, hopefully these next few weeks, though, it'll have a stronghold. The older people can come out. Shit. Not with Dune, man. Not with Dune coming out. And I mean, old people love Ridley Scott, so they're the ones who came out for the last duel. Them and us. When I was in the theater, it was (laughs) it was me and like four old guys and their sons watching the last duel. And I was not surprised. It seems about right. When I was there, they're doing essentially that crowd. Yeah. But I just don't think I just don't think No Time to Die is going to be hold up against Dune and whatever else is coming out starting in November. Like, it's just not going to... It's falling off the map. It's not going to hold off. No. Disappointing. No. Which is upsetting because No Time to Die is going to be, this a, is... A, um, it is gonna be a big hook for you. It's going to be tough. And and speaking of tough hits, in the third week, came, coming in third place, Venom 2, Let There Be Carnage, has made $16.5 million. That gives it $168 million domestic. And I think 200, almost 300 million worldwide. Is that correct? Something like that. Because I was yeah. doing the math last night to see how we are toe to toe. And I'm at 1.3 billion total. Of course, the three movies that I've released have gone through their runs completely. And you've got two that are still going through theirs. But you're at about, with the three movies that you have released, you're at about 900 million almost. Oh, almost 900 yes. million. Oh, so yes. you're, you're close. But I don't think... Because Jungle Cruise is done. We know that. And it's just no time to die in Venom 2. And I don't think those two movies can make up the 300 million difference. So I still think with both of our three movies out, I'm still ahead so far. Save Brandon, that for Brandon. our update episode. But I, I think I will be able to catch you. Not like good. maybe exactly by the time that happens. But I'll be in a spitting distant line. Oh, dad. I don't know why I'm speaking version so much. Anyway. Oh, it. It's because I really scoop. Really. 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 The Adams Family 2 came in with 7.1 million, which is a pretty good hold for them. So, you know, they outlasted the last duel, which only had 4.8 million. Sad. Which isn't <laughs> sad. Um, I mean, the reasons for why, I mean, it's an R rated film, it's a sensitive topic, it's a crowded field. I mean, we got major franchise blockbusters before and after it and during it. So, it was a weird release date that they chose. Um, and also, who knows about the marketing? Maybe it wasn't uh, appealing to general audiences. Maybe people are just going to wait for it to come out 
on PVOD. Who knows? But this is definitely a disappointing opening for the last duel. Certainly. And after the last duel was Shang-Chi with three and a half million, pardon me, three and a half million this weekend, which brings it up to 218 million domestically, which is great. <laughs> and I think close to 450 worldwide is what I remember. 400 to 450 worldwide. Oh, I think you're over-exaggerating a bit there, bud. I, don't I think it's at like 412 right now. I said 400 to 450. That's in the range. <laughs> okay, sure. I'm not inaccurate. I said 300 million to 700 million. It's in the range. <laughs> it's um, in the range. It's in there. Okay. The rest of the top 10 are a bunch of movies that I don't even, like half the mile, I've never even heard of. And they're under million. So we're going to them quick. We're going to skip them actually to get to our predictions. Oh, wow. For Dune. You said fuck them. <laughs> get rid of them. Dune, which is coming out this weekend, it is also coming out on HBO Max. Why are they doing this? I don't know. They're trying to freaking. Just what they said they'd do. The film. I mean, I know, but it's like you could have at least toned down the HBO Max factor. They are releasing it on Thursday, the 21st, instead of the 22nd, which is when like the wide release thing for the actual theatrical uh, release of it happens. So I don't know why they're trying to undercut Dune, but I predict that it'll certainly get over 30 million, right? Mm. So it'll get over Godzilla for versus sure. Kong. And I think it can hit 40 million. I think it can go crazy. I think, let's say 100 million, 150 <laughs> million. Let's go. Oh. Somewhere between 10 million and 150 million. It's in that range, I'm going to say. 100%. 100%. No, I think you're right. I think it can hit 40 million easily. I think it's got enough pull. It's got enough star power. It's the biggest, it's the new thing that's coming out this weekend that everybody will want to see as opposed to Ron's Gone Wrong and the French Dispatch. I think everybody's gonna come out for Dune. I think everybody's gonna love to see it. I think it's I think it's got a bigger pull than either you or I could have predicted in terms of actual box office numbers. So I'm gonna say forty five. Oh, forty five. I'm going full on for it. I mean if Halloween kills can make forty just about I mean almost I think can do it. Almost fit you're right, almost fifty, yeah. Forty nine, yeah. I think I think Dune can do it. I'm hoping so too. Hopefully the spectacle factor will drag people out to the theaters. It's got star-studded cast, great classic story. I mean, people, go watch Dune. Go see Dune. And we will be talking about it next week. Yep. Anyway, other than Dune coming out this weekend is Ron's Gone Wrong, which is an animated movie that I barely know anything about. And I can't imagine it doing better than 10 million. Maybe 15. It's I'll go 10 to 15 animated movie and so i have no clue how these usually play i've also not heard much about it. i've seen no marketing for it but i'm also not the target audience for it so but i have no clue I'm yeah you should have seen the marketing at all the elementary schools they had big posters <laughs> they really went for it yeah you gotta get that crowd in all the uh, crayola 18 brands million. 18 really that's a yeah. fat fast i think that's a little over the top i'm gonna go Wait. with I'll go with 13. All right. We'll yeah. be in the middle and it'll be like 15. The French Dispatch. 5 million. I also think it's going to be 5 million. With the I last think duel, it's going to make a lot. I'm like, how, I don't know how these adult-leaning films are going to play. Uh, so, The French Dispatch. Why has Timothy Chalamet got two movies coming out on the same day? He's just so good. I mean, to be fair, Ridley Scott and Adam Driver have two movies coming out within a month of each other. Within two That's months true. of each other. So, That's very true. I mean, 
And didn't, isn't, I mean, Naomi Harris was in Venom and in No Time to Die. I mean, limited roles, but there's a lot of weird things where actors have their movies coming out on like the same weekend or back to back. Yeah, Crazy. nothing like fighting each other. Indeed. Other than that, we have Halloween Kills coming up again. Uh, in terms of a drop, I think horror movies typically have a steeper drop because the people who want to see them see them right away. And so I'm going to say, I'm going to go with your Ron's Gone Wrong prediction and say 18 million at the most. Wow, incredible. I'll go 20 million. No Time to Die, I think, can get 14 million. I think you can get 10. You'll roll You bitch. Okay. Not with Dune and and Halloween Kills uh, who knows? putting it up a fight. Happen. Come on, Bond. You're just praying for it. Yeah, you need it. That's very true. Bond right. is dead. Long live Timothy Chalamet. No, I mean, yeah. Timothy Chalamet is the new Bond. No. <laughs> Bro, who should be the new Bond? We can't talk about that, but Henry Cavill is the only correct answer. Uh, I feel like should be nobody. come in for one, one film only. He does a standalone with Chris or Nolan. Like George right. Lowe? No, I think it should be a nobody. Anyway, moving on. Time to do our Ridley Scott director's analysis. Ridley. Part one, Ridley. So... Ridley Scott was born in South Shields, County Durham, in northern England, almost Scotland at this point. Like, it's that far north up. It's like 50, 60 miles away from Scotland, I think. Like, it's close. In 1937, his uncle owned and operated several cinemas in England, sort of uh, beating out everybody else. He's getting there quick, buying up cinemas and making his own cinema chain. When he was younger, Ridley Scott used to read H.G. Wells, and he was influenced by those stories, as well as the movies It, The Terror from Beyond Space, and The Day the Earth Stood Still. So you can see that sort of sci-fi influence that Ridley is getting at this point, obviously. He studied at the Royal College of Art in London, and after he graduated and had made a short film starring his brother and his father, he started his career as a set decorator on TV shows for BBC and other British broadcasting people. He then formed a production company with his brother, Tony Scott, who was also a big filmmaker. He did Top Gun and uh, uh, Unstoppable, the one with the train with Denzel, yeah. and um, True Romance, which was written by Tarantino himself. And the two of them, as well as everybody else in their production company, which I think was RSA, Ridley Scott and Associates, I think is what it was. <laughs> Interesting. They made a bunch of commercials in the 70s, which you'll see come up through Ridley Scott's career. He made a bunch of different commercials throughout his entire career. He came up, he made some a couple of years ago, like three or four years ago. that were like big budget commercials. So he's big for that. Made a lot of commercials. Super cool. Then he made his first film starring Harvey Keitel and Keith Carradine called The Duelists, which is a period drama about two people who are feuding and duel many times. Definitely something that comes up again a lot in his work. <laughs> yeah. A lot, a lot, a lot. Then he saw Star Wars in 1977 and was convinced that big-budget effects-driven films could be successful. He had not thought so up until then, and now he's like, wow, we can do it. We can do it, guys. Let's do it. So he agreed to make Alien, and it was his big breakthrough. Everybody loved Alien. Everybody thought it was great. And he was like, guys, stop. <laughs> Get out of here. It's not that great. <laughs> and then he made his director's cut, which he actually disliked more than the original. Strange. Then he tried to make his own Dune, which is kind of interesting. He was attached to the project in the early 80s, and that kind of fell through. So he Very made Blade topical. Runner instead. There's a lot of 
when we talk about Dune next week, I'm going to go deep in the history of Dune. All the people who are attached to it because it's it's a crazy story. Alejandro, it's insane, a whole, yeah. But I should read the watch the documentary about Alejandro Jodorowsky, who was like the big surrealist filmmaker who tried to make his own Dune. <laughs> he burned the whole budget on like the storyboarding and the costume yeah. designs and all that. Yeah, in yeah but it, was, it was like if you look at the designs, they're fantastic. Like he yeah. should have done it, and it sucks that he didn't. But anyway, he tried to make Dune, was unsuccessful, made Blade Runner instead, which was a flop, but a cult classic. Born instantly. Then he made the Apple Macintosh commercial in uh, called title 1984 to introduce the new Macintosh computer. It's, that's the one where the guy's running and it's like the computer on the screen is like talking to you about how it's like it's it's basically 1984 the book and it's like that dystopian future and the guy takes the the thing and throws it into the computer and breaks it and then it's like apple it's that commercial and they said this will help us sell computers it's the most famous commercial ever made it's the most famous it's i never heard it their whole statement was like uh apple is different (laughs) be different like they don't even use it anymore I don't even think they, they they didn't even show the computer in the commercial. They didn't do it's it's bizarre commercial, but it's famous and it's one of the most famous commercials ever made. So he's big in like the commercial industry. He's made a bunch of commercials for perfumes and clothing lines and things like that. So Ridley Scott is like in, in the same way that David Fincher and a lot of people from the nineties were big in music videos, Ridley Scott was definitely big in like commercials, especially coming up and even now today he makes big budget commercials that take place in Mars for whatever reason or something. His commercials today are weird. Anyway, after that, he made Thelma and Louise, which was his big commercial success that he had done. It was huge. People loved it. People thought it was great. And he followed that up with a couple of mediocre films and then came back with the movie we're going to be talking about in a second, Gladiator. People loved it. Won five Academy Awards. Uh, got an, He got another nomination for directing after Thelma and Louise, but didn't win again. He's never won an Academy Award. He's been nominated four times. Uh... He made Black Hawk Down, which was he was nominated for again a couple years after Gladiator. Like one year after, wasn't it? One year after. Oh, maybe. He had like he had Gladiator, which was a big hit. Then he had Hannibal, which was a big hit, and then he had Black Hawk Down, which was a big critical. You're right, two thousand one. That's a year later, but at the same time, Hannibal wasn't good. Critical hit or commercial hit, maybe, but yeah. Well, he mediocre. He had one good. He had the critical movie of two thousand one, and then he had a different one for the commercial side. Yeah, there you go. And then he had a long time of sort of mediocre films following that those hit series in the early 2000s. And then he made The Martian, which I think is fantastic. We should talk about The Martian Bro, he's good. the next time. 01 to 2015. Bro, you want me to go deep into his No, no, no. Filmography? I mean, you want me to talk no, about no. all the mediocre films he made? But in it is, I think period? Prometheus is an important one to bring up. Yeah, I, I, I suppose. Revisiting his old career. He comes back to Alien and does Prometheus and Alien Covenant, which are both just bad movies that I've seen. Uh, He made Matchstick Men after Black Hawk Down. That was his big return to cinema two years later. And Matchstick Men, I've seen the first half hour. It's it's (laughs) not very great. He made A Good Year with Russell Crowe, American Gangster with Russell Crowe, Robin Hood with Russell Crowe. Okay. (laughs) And then he made Prometheus. Yes. And then Exodus, Gods and Kings with Russell (laughs) Crowe. Uh, he made money, all the money in the world. That big controversy with Kevin Spacey, if anybody remembers that, where Kevin Spacey oh, was yeah. in it. And then he got outed as being a terrible human being and was canceled. And so he brought in Christopher Plummer and used Christopher Plummer to replace Kevin Spacey digitally and re- did a lot of reshooting. 
And then Christopher Palmer was nominated for an Oscar, which I think is kind of funny. And after that, here we are. He directed a couple episodes of that show, Raised by Wolves on HBO. But other than that, brings us to now, The Last Duel. Dang. There we go. You want to talk a little bit about Ridley Scott's style? His style? His so, style as a filmmaker. I listened to a video of his talking about some of the work that he does, like his approach to things. And he did mention in there, going back to his days doing commercials, that he's very meticulous in the storyboarding phase. He's very detailed in coming up with sketches. It also makes sense that, you know, he was a set deck, so he always had that visual eye. So he's always planning out those shots ahead of time, seeing what the visual will be. And he's certainly a very striking visual director. I think we'll talk a bit about that with these upcoming films. But that is definitely a massive approach he does. He also tends to not rehearse with the actors. Like he talked about him finding that just going through some of the blocking, letting them know what is meant to happen. And then filming on the first time that they actually run through the scene is critical because it's likely that they'll capture exactly what you need them to capture. Uh, in the first few takes and then afterwards it's just um, sort of trying to replicate things that already happened before and so it becomes a bit inorganic at that point which is funny that he says that whereas somebody like Fincher will make Andrew Garfield do what how many takes did he have to do with that final scene in social network Uh, it was like crazy a crazy amount but his approach is being like oh that way it will come naturally to you like it's just muscle memory at that point Ridley Scott is in the other direction. He thinks if you're doing too many takes, then you're doing something wrong. Um, Other things that stand out about his style is definitely the lighting. He very much likes his dynamic lighting. He likes to bounce that lighting off of materials and objects and atmospheric things like fog and rain. We'll certainly get to that. And he also, again, makes sense with the whole set deck thing. He is very much in love with uh, big production design, big in scope, very detailed, very intricate. And that plays into, I think, the most defining aspect of his style, which is he really is capable of creating an atmosphere. Like when you go into a film of Ridley Scott's, you are immersed in it. Like he really does give it that distinct mood that permeates the entire thing. And so that to me is one of the most important elements of Ridley Scott's style. Anything else I missed or things that you want to contribute? I just think it's interesting that he sticks to a lot of uh, a lot of very similar styles of movies. Like he has his sci-fi movies the that he makes, pieces, yeah. and then he has those period pieces where it's two people dueling, <laughs> essentially, like two enemies combatants. And he's doing that again. He's making a Bonaparte movie, Napoleon, oh, really? really soon. Yeah, that's gonna be his next movie. Is a Napoleon movie with Joaquin Phoenix, and then he has his just out of the blue coming out of nowhere just drama comedy movies like Thumb and Louise and All the Money in the World and the House of Gucci's coming out. It's very versatile. It, but it's just the three. He doesn't he doesn't Well, I guess so. The only one that differs is uh Black Hawk Down, which is just a modern war movie. But other that's than true. that, well there you go. I mean that's one of those four, three four distinct styles, which I mean compared to other directors, I mean, because he's very successful in each of those. I mean, when you think of a period piece epic Gladiator is one of the, at least in a modern sense, is the like foremost one you think of in terms of sci-fi. I mean, it has two of the most essential sci-fi movies out there. I think his sci-fi ones are the best ones, if you ask me. Because I've seen plenty of his dramas to know that they're not 
the bee's knees, except for maybe Thelma and Louise, which I haven't seen, but I've always yeah, wanted to. Yeah, he struck gold with Thelma and Louise, and it's weird that no other stray drama of his was even close. Because all the money in the world I hear quality. is not quite great, but I have been meaning to watch it out of curiosity just to see how Christopher Plummer integrates into the film, just out of curiosity. Because they had to like refilm and digitally add him in at certain points. I want to see how they did that. Because he did the same thing with um, Oliver Reed in Gladiator. Because Oliver Reed just died in the middle of production, and they had That's to put true. him in, and it just it looks bad. And I want to see how how well he's he's done it now. Seeing as how all the main work came out in 2017, 17 years later, has he learned? Has he gotten better? Has technology advanced? I, I'm curious about that. So I will watch All the Main in the World at some point. Gotcha. All right, so now that we have talked a bit about his history, his filmography, and his style, we will talk about one of those uh, films that he was acclaimed for. came out in 2000. As you said, it won five Academy Awards, including Best Picture. It was nominated for Director, Did Not Win, by Russell Crowe, won for Best Actor. It also won for Costume Design, Sound, and Visual Effects. But it had 12 nominations overall, which is quite impressive. It was also a box office hit. It made four hundred and sixty million worldwide. So we're talking about Gladiator, by the way. Yes, <laughs> I'll just give you all the clues and make you guess which <laughs> film we're talking about. Um, I mean, I feel like it's pretty evident. We're talking about Russell Crowe winning the Oscar for yeah, Gladiator. I mean, uh, if you have people listening that aren't like movie geeks, maybe they wouldn't get it. I suppose. Well, guess what? It's Gladiator. That's the film we're talking about, and. Again, big, big hit for him. Uh, he has, like, again, just one strong hit each decade. Like, one really defining film. And Gladiator, Gladiator was his for the 2000s. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, I'll turn it over to you to give your initial thoughts on this. Because it's a bit spicy, isn't it? <sighs> I suppose it is. Uh, it is just a very drab and sad and dull kind of movie and the action sequences aren't filmed very great it's just kind of confusing and dizzying and isn't cohesive we edited i suppose not not super great um it's not as like it is grand but it and the opening sequence is very large and bombastic and i have always liked the opening battle sequence i think i'm a fan of that i remember the first time i tried to watch it i was able to get through that and then stopped and then the second time I was able to finish the whole thing and said, I did not like it. And then today I watched it again in preparation for the show. And I once again did not like it. Um, this is just something it's just for a movie that's just so epic and has such grandeur to it. And this is literally like supposed to be a period epic piece about this soldier who is overcoming great adversity to stand up to the emperor of Rome himself. It's just so drab and so lifeless and so depressing and so slow i just i don't know there is no it's missing like it has heart in the sense that the character has drive to to do what he wants to do but it doesn't like watching it it doesn't feel like it has heart which is a misstep and i just am not a fan of this movie very much interesting try and try and sell me on it i'm not gonna do that but i will just (laughs) You're not a fan either. Unpack some of the things that you have said there, because some of those things, I mean, inherently aren't uh, negatives for the movie. I mean, if it was it trying to me. strike a like depressing, somber tone, 
then the fact that it delivers that I don't think necessarily makes it. But why? Bad. Why does why is why is it sad and, and depressing? Like why? Well, I don't think it's that depressing the whole way through. I think there's flashes, like particularly in the uh, relationship between Maximus and Juba. Is his yes. name his friend? Yeah. Like they have a couple moments that are it's very brief and very bare. Positive. I mean, sure, but there's also, I mean, it is very heavily a, a serious drama, and also, I guess, spoiler warning as well. But this is also like the setup for the movie. Is, I mean, his wife and kid get straight up killed and killed. destroyed brutally, um, and so that's always going to have an inherent level of dang, this is serious subject matter this is kind of sad and depressing which i mean it's interesting i'll see what you say about the last duel but i think the same thing happens there like that is a very serious somber you can say drab and depressing um, but i think like that's part of the intention there and i think it comes out more so in the last duel i think gladiator again based on its color palette and those brief but it's color or maximus isn't brooding it's like i'm looking I mean, at sure, brown it, and yellow the whole time i'm just bored staring at it it's just non-stop the same thing over and over again and i it becomes tiresome and wearying i suppose but uh, that's also like a common theme in really scott's thing is he tends to go the one major color palette for each of his films it doesn't work in this one it's like the white gray skill in last duel the red and martian there's an overwhelming like teal well it works in the martian because on fucking mars like of course it's well it makes red, sense yeah. here i mean for rome is not the location yellow <laughs> In the Blasi Coliseum, what you mean? And what? also, I mean, I'm going to go to Rome. I'm going to take a picture there, and I'm going to send it to you. I'm going to point out <laughs> all the different colors. I'm going to say, look, there's blue, and look, there's a little bit of green there. Wow. You will have bested me. Wow. Incredible. Yeah. Um, so in that way, I mean, I don't know. If you take issue with the color palette, I can't really argue against that. Uh, what I can say is for that some of those battle sequences the biggest gripe i have with this film is the way that he does the stutter slow-mo like yeah. where they didn't actually plan to do slow motion and it seems like they just did it post-production yeah by just extending some of the frames um and then it slowing it down it looks awful i hate it they, I hate they it so did much. that it's when, the worst filmmaking technique i think i've ever seen they did that when commodus stabs him in the back right before their final duel they do a slow motion just out of nowhere commodus just like staring at and him it's also like, why undercuts it. and i was like stop doing that again there's an argument to be made where it's like oh maybe it is that dizzying effect of war but no for me no that's it's it bad. completely takes you out because then you fully realize oh i'm watching a film and you're not really immersed in it anymore like regular slow-mo just go with that if you want to if you didn't plan for that beforehand then just keep it keep it regular speed and try to fold in the sound or the special effects and whatnot or up the pace of the editing in order to give that sense of the war and the franticness of it don't try and do that stutter slow-mo stuff it, it sucks so much i hate that stuff but I do think other things that he does, like, for instance, the dream sequences, I mean, you can tell, like, the dating of the 2000 there is very much, it has that look to it, but I still think it is effective when it um, is able to align us with Maximus, where we're able to see his, like, hands moving over the grain, and we see periodically those shots of 
that like castle thing that he's going up to, um, which is reminding us of what his, as you said, his drive is, which is to be with the family at the end of the day. And so I think the way that Scott is able to uh, fold that in to the film periodically to consistently give us that reminder of who this guy is and what his main drive is um, does help overall keep us connected to it. You disagree? I just don't get the hype. I just don't get the hype of this movie at all. People love it so much, and I just don't understand. I watch it, and I'm bored half the time, and the other half of the time, it's an action sequence that I can't even tell what's happening. Like, the fight between him and Tigress, you can't tell me what the fuck is happening at any moment. (laughs) It's so dizzyingly and just bizarrely shot and bizarrely edited that I don't even know what the fuck is happening. It's just just not, not, not well done. Uh, I just gives, I don't disagree bad taste with in my house. that particular one. That battle was not good. Did they use real tigers for that? Uh, parts of it are so yeah. like they had real tigers on glass for some of it, and they had fake tiger like the, the tiger that's like on top of him that he stabs a bunch of times is obviously a fake tiger. So it's a mixture of that, and then I think that sometimes it was CGI. Like I could tell at some point they definitely put in a CGI tiger for at least two or three of the shots. Gotcha. It doesn't look good, but I mean, incorporating tigers is a good idea for a gladiator thing. I thought that would be cool, but I mean, could have shot it better, I guess. Well, could've, for could have done better. Tigers existing there, they couldn't because I mean the CGI better. wasn't that great in two thousand, and then with the real tigers, you got to be careful with what you do with it. So I can see the reasons for why that particular scene was not edited in the best action wise, but there were other shots not particularly during the uh fighting but afterwards like that big 360 shot on maximus and jabu juba um juba. after their victory and then it's like the crowd cheering and whatnot which i mean as you know i certainly have a soft spot for stories that play on the theme of these combatants like doing sports combat and yeah, drawing okay, on Mr. the crowd WWE. yeah you know you know um, and so the fact that they leaned into that here, where it's like, oh, you got to win the crowd, you'll win your freedom. That I really much enjoyed. Um, and there's just, in shots like that, I mean, there's just pure spectacle. Can I ask, what is what is the theme of the movie? Like, what is the lesson? What is the moral lesson? The moral lesson. Like, what, what lesson do we learn as the audience watching this movie? Oh, I think, I mean, what they're saying about... Russell Crowe's character, Maximus, which to be fair, that I think can be a good criticism because he's sort of wishy-washy on how connected he is to Rome and the like, dream of Rome and giving it back uh, to the people and whatnot. But yeah. I think the major themes here seem to be freedom. Like there's the basic but I never... story of Maximus trying to like reclaim not necessarily his freedom because he's going for revenge, but well, that's essentially the free. Like, even if the story is freedom, either from physical capture or from emotional mental state of being imprisoned that way, it still doesn't feel like, I don't know. They're just not selling me on the whole he's captured thing that much. I don't know. What do you mean? I just feel captured. like I'm not emotionally attached to the slave. fact that his family is dead. <laughs> Why? I'm not going to lie. We don't know anything about them. We just know that he's his fam that they're his family. And like it just feels like they could have hammered that home better. As I an think, emotional point. I think they did enough of that. I mean, other than 
them having a certain section of the story dedicated to him actually being with his family and like doing farm stuff. I think they set up enough that he clearly has a connection to his family. He clearly loves them. He is talking about, oh, I don't really like doing this warrior stuff, but I'm doing out of duty to the country, but I can't wait to get back home. Saying things like dirt washes off easier than blood. Like he clearly just wants to be a farmer. He wants to be there with his family. They keep asking him, oh, are you going to stick around? Or are you going to I don't know, do something with uh, Marcus Aurelius? He's like, nope, I'm going to go home. That's my plan after this. It just seems like a revenge story where the end lesson is, I got my revenge. And it's, and well, now no, he's free. You and could I, see it as, but, again, he Vengeance take, is not the, the road to freedom. Well, right. But that's not, I think you can interpret this as, he initially starts out for vengeance, but over time he does come to that understanding of I need to um, do this not just to like satisfy my own need for vengeance, but in order to free Rome. Because right initially he denies Marcus Aurelius's request for him to become the uh, new emperor, so that he could like essentially serve as a steward, handing the power over back to the Senate, which is giving it over to the people, which is us freeing Rome right from a dictatorship. So over time, we see like multiple times where he's like, no, I want to go to family. I don't want to like do this. I'm not going to serve in this way. Uh, so he doesn't have that like full commitment to Rome at that point. Mm-hmm. And then over the course of the story, like I think there's a moment where Lucilla comes in and is like, yo, I've got this senator who wants to meet with you. And he's still at that point. He's like, no, I'm not going to work with you. I'm not going to work with that senator and do this stuff. Um, but over time he does get to that point there's also that scene where he was like coming out and he's like rome is not this or that is not rome or something like that um where he's clearly wrestling with this idea of what rome is and then he finally comes into his own and he's arguing with proximo about oh this is what marcus aurelius's dream was for rome this is what i have to do in order to see that dream through and mm-hmm. then at the end even though he's like dying like, yes, he technically got the vengeance, but it ultimately, when he hands over the power and he says, oh, give the power to Gracchus or whatever the senator's name is. Yeah, that is, him, is correct. Like freeing himself from this desire, this vengeance that he felt compelled to pursue, but also freeing Rome from the tyranny that it was facing. I'm not sold on it. <laughs> it okay. still it still feels like half a story to me i feel like I'm there's no i feel like there's multiple layers i don't know if it's half a story i can see where some of the elements may be competing and may undercut each other but i think there it's, is a general sense of them trying to uh, comment on that theme there's just not enough of an effort if you ask me okay <laughs> it doesn't it doesn't feel like a full measure in that direction it feels like i can see that. we have that feeling of like Yes, that's what the story is trying to be, but then you have so much of this movie is just bloody gladiatorial combat that is over the top and poorly poorly shot and edited that it just feels like I don't know, they're under they you like you're saying, they're undercutting that sort of theme that they're trying to hit. Well, but that's the other theme, right, of Rome is a mob and like if you bring them death, they'll love you for it, that sort of thing. Um, which again is they could have gone further with it. Yes, I agree, but they are doing an effort at trying to comment on um, like, well, is it even like if Rome is this mob and is giving freedom over to the people to this mob, something that's worthwhile if 
they could just be um, dazzled by the the sports combat of people killing each other and whatnot. So again, they address it. They could have gone further with it, but then I think that's pushing it a bit too far out of no. Um, I what the purpose of the story itself would have been. I disagree. Okay, we will have to agree to disagree. How would you rate this out of five gladiatorial tiger entertainers? I, for the main story that they're going on with his quest, Maximus. No, no, the movie is a whole. No, no, his main story. No, no, I'm giving you the elements. I'm saying for oh, that reason, your which pluses, I think these are your positives. Strong, yes, because we do really feel aligned with his character. I felt like we understand. I mean, you know, he's a family man. You know, he's gutted about the death of his family. You understand why he's pursuing this quest, yes. and you see him uh, through the course of that quest take on a greater meaning and decide to not just take down communists for himself, but for the other people. And then you got this politicking going on um, with Blasi Joaquin Phoenix as Commodus killing his own father who wasn't giving him enough love. It's not and really so- politicking, it's just murder. I'm getting to that, Dylan. Plus, <laughs> So he does that because he's not feeling uh, like he was loved and appreciated at all. And so, I mean, yes, in a way that is politicking because he's preventing Marcus's wish of, hey, turn over the power to the Senate. He is seizing that power for himself. So there is that personal side of it of always killing a father who he did not feel loved by, but he's also securing his throne completely and totally and preventing the transition of Rome back to a republic. Um, And then you see the exchange going on between the senators who know what Commodus is doing by putting on a 150 day gladiator spree, um, again, trying to move the people from thinking about some of the ills that they are facing, like some sort of plague that's going on there to again, just be mindlessly entertained by a certain spectacle that I thought was really intriguing. I also like the way that they had the connection there between Lucilla and Commodus. I mean, he truly is a despicable person, and you get to see that play out through the whole way. But I mean, it's understandable um, how each of these factors are coming together, why he sort of is the way that he is. And I think it was a great, not foil, but the way that Maximus was an antagonist to Commodus and vice versa, the way they both sort of ended up being their obstacles to each other, and they keep trying to um, butt heads and get rid of the other person, but in the best way possible. Um, until, of course, it culminates in one offing the other. I think it's good. I genuinely think it's great. I'm going to give that mofo 4.5 out of 5. Wow. High gladiatorial tiger entertainers. <laughs> All right. So for me, because I'm not as intrigued by the elements you brought up, and because I think it is a bit drab and a bit muddy, and because I don't think the action sequences could have brought livelihood to a more drab film were shot poorly, and because I'm not quite entertained as I watch it, I, I am not entertained. When he <laughs> asks you, are you not entertained? I say, yes, I am not entertained. <laughs> uh, I give it a three out of five gladiatorial tiger entertainers. Intriguing. You always do that. You always like just wreck a movie, destroy it, insult its whole existence, and you're like, three out of five. <laughs> I mean, it's still, like, the opening sequence is still great as, like, a battle sequence is, and it's still, like, I guess if I have to give it positives, 
some of the set decoration is well done. Some of it, like the the technicality of the film itself, is still impressive. It is a very much a grand scale and is definitely trying to be an epic. I just don't think the story aligns with what I view to be an epic. Gotcha. It's not like I'm watching Lord of the Rings or I'm watching Spartacus or something, you know. To me, it doesn't quite hit those marks of what an epic story is. It falls short a little bit. Hence, me docking two stars. Two gladiatorial tiger entertainers. <laughs> gotcha. Well, maybe Gladiator 2 will change your mind. It's just, I, I always compare things to how I rated other things, which I probably shouldn't do, but I think I gave, what did I give a two and a half? I think I gave like Venom or something a two and a half, and I'm like, Gladiator isn't that low. <laughs> so let, let's hit, give it a three and move on. I think you can also, like giving your rating based on how you feel about it. Mm-hmm. Like I think, well, I gave 3.5 stars to Jungle Cruise. Yeah. And I think we would both agree, I mean, I don't know if you saw it, but Gladiator is a better movie for sure. Mm-hmm. but for the intention that jungle cruise had and the fact that it was entertaining and enjoyable the whole way through like it did the things that it was trying to do it was not ever trying to be this massive masterpiece or anything um and it was very derivative like pulling on all those 2000s franchises uh in order to give it some of its look and its story and really everything about it but i still gave it 3.5 which i think is higher than the green knight but also the green knight is a vastly better movie and it was more thought-provoking and all that stuff yeah, yeah. but the initial feelings i had coming out of the theater Understood. i was like okay i jungle cruise gets that rating but again doesn't necessarily mean it's yeah. the better film my my feeling coming out of gladiator was definitely a, a three Dang. like i feel a three coming out of it gotcha well moving on to the last duel which we both saw recently mm-hmm. is his newest film and again he's returning to his uh, common roots of period pieces. With this one, we have Matt Damon as Jean de Carouge. Jean de Adam, Carouge. Adam Dreyda as Jacques Legris. Jodie Comer as the Lady Marguerite. And Ben Affleck as Count Pierre. It was written by Damon and Affleck. They have reunited as a writing team. And they brought on Nicole Olive Center to help out with the writing um, since it very much focuses on sensitive topics dealing with a woman. And so they were like, maybe us two guys are not the best people to write this. So they brought her on. And do you know how they went about writing it? How's that? Or are I, you asking or do you like, no, and you're going to tell us. I do know. Like, do oh. you know? Okay. So did they do I, it? each did one perspective. Yeah. Yeah, they did. So I was listening to Matt Damon talk about it and he was like, they all read the book that it's based on and they all know the full story and the, and because it's the movie is taken from both all three perspectives of Matt Damon's character, Adam Driver's character and Jodie Comer's character. They broke it off into three chapters, kind of Rashomon style. Cause this is literally just Rashomon is okay. cut and dry. And they each like sort of went at it one section each. So Matt Damon wrote the section that is John de Carouge, which is the first chapter Ben Affleck wrote the Jacques Legree chapter, which is the second one, and he was supposed to play that role, but he stepped aside, I think, because there were scheduling conflicts, and he felt like he wasn't right for the part, so he had Adam I think Driver he wanted it. a fun part, I think <laughs> so he, he said, did. let me be Pierre. He was, he was like, writing that section, he was like, I, I, I feel more attached to this Pierre guy. <laughs> and then Nicole Holocenter, who was a woman, wrote 
the female perspective, which was Jodie Comer's, which was the third chapter. So I think that's an interesting way to do that. Uh, I, coming out of the theater, I liked it more than I thought I would. I really did. Oh, look at that. I, I didn't think it would be good. I remember seeing the trailer and being like, I'm not going to like that. It looks stupid. <laughs> I remember thinking, we talked about it on the show, we talked about how we didn't think it was going to be good. We thought it was going to be eh. We thought it might be better, would probably be better than House of Gucci, but it still wasn't going to be great. But honestly, I liked it more than I thought I did. I, I love things that are Rashomon style, where it's just the same events told from different perspectives. But I do have a little bit of gripes with how they did it in this particular instance. With Rashomon, what happened? Have you seen Rashomon? Yeah. Okay. Are you going to spoil it for everyone? I wasn't going to spoil it for you. I just know. Yeah, I'll spoil it. Are we? We can also. I think we should. We should spoil the last duel. I mean, it's real history, but also, I think it I'm is integral duel, to yeah. not know to our review. This is a spoiler. So yes, spoiler for last duel. But anyway, since you've seen Rashomon, I will spoil it. So you know how they... Wait, I thought you just said you weren't going to. Well, if you've seen we it... We do spoil Last Duel, still. we don't spoil Rashomon. You don't want me to spoil Rashomon? No. Alright, fine, then I won't spoil Rashomon. But anyway, you know the basic watch premise Rashomon, is... But I think, yeah, making the comparisons about the structure and then also the premise is very similar. Um, but yeah, try to tactfully avoid spoiling that one so people can and see I, I and see spoil, a better version. But I will say what the premise is is basically a woman is raped and her husband is murdered, and it's told from different perspectives of how the crime happened. And in that version, I guess I can't tell exactly how it is, but basically, each of the, like the crimes are remembered differently, and who killed the man is remembered differently in each instance. Yeah. So like everybody has a different perspective on how the per- the man died. Everybody thinks he- someone else killed him. Yeah. So They're like completely different. Like it's yeah. not necessarily retellings. This is completely different perspectives that are brought forward. Whereas last duel, it is very much like slight tweaks in the way it's things a are little presented. too slight in terms of the actual crime. Mm-hmm. Is it's like yes, Jacques Legree thinks he didn't rape her, but in all three stories, it's very clear that he raped her. Like, it's it's very obvious. And there's no, like, they don't try to rewrite that in any way, in any of their perspective. Like, they do, because they're built in the Jacques Legree part, Chapter 2. They build it up as if she is leading him on, it like, with little tweaks that they do. And so you think that's how they're going to go about it. But she still says no, and he just rapes her. Like, right, so are you saying... change that part of it. So you're saying additional ambiguity would have been better? Yes, in the sense that it would have been more important to see it from his actual perspective, which his perspective was, no, I didn't rape her. He does say, like, yeah, she put up the usual protest, but there was no rape. But from our perspective as the audience, we see that he's just lying. But I think it's deeper than that. I think the the person, the real-life person, really believed he didn't rape her. I don't think he was just bold-faced lying. I think he had the perspective of, that wasn't rape. I'm a gentleman. I don't do that. Like, I think he was egotistical enough to have that perspective but i feel like the film didn't match that perspective i think that part of the story could interpret jacques legree as he was truly believing that like he was so caught up in his own idea that oh this is a mutual Mm -hmm. attraction and lust yeah exactly contain that's what they're building it up as well i agree i think i think you could here's the thing though especially in this day and age having that sort of ambiguity uh even from his perspective i think would have been uh, quite dangerous so i think showing the fact that yeah. even in his perspective there's like at least five times where she says no and is resisting 
is important to showcase. Like, there's no instance, I like, think... there's no way he could possibly believe. I mean, I guess, again, like, how do you get in the mind of people that do that sort of stuff? But I think it's important to showcase that, yes, to any other observer, this was clearly rape. And then to him, there's some sort of way that he could possibly twist in his mind, not even based on, like, any actual evidence that was going on, but just because of his own twisted perspective of like what that relationship was and the fact that his feelings for her was somehow reciprocated, even though it clearly wasn't, I think they needed to show that it clear clearly was not in that particular scene in that again, there was resistance but there. If that's the way they're going to go, if the way they're going to go is that no matter what she was raped and we will know it, even though his perspective seems different, what is the purpose of showing the scene twice where one time, it is clearly it's at the the scene from her perspective is clearly more villainous towards Jock Ligri's character. Like, what is right. the purpose of showing it twice? And honestly, what's the purpose of showing it all? I I think rape scenes are gratuitous. No, I don't think so. I think I, I disagree. I think like the amount of gore and violence we see in film, and where that is like accepted, and then it seems like rave scenes or sexual assault scenes are completely untouchable. I don't understand that at all. Part of film is about aligning you with the character, having an empathetic connection with somebody else and understanding their experience. This film is clearly about like that sexual assault and that rape. That is the core of it. So at least once, I think it's necessary to see that film and we're to see this very heinous action. Again, it's not like you need to tell, well, again, who knows based on, how things are still going in society but um you shouldn't need to be like hey this is a horrible act but depicting that and showing how like awful it is and traumatic it is for marguerite for women in general i think is critical at least once especially in a story that is completely designed around that sort of attack um, but what is the purpose of showing the rape from jacques legree's perspective where it is still a rape but certainly differently shown than in her perspective In her right. perspective it's very much a lot more violent and more uh malicious yes what's the point of showing it from his perspective as a rape but at the same time i don't want to say like 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 you know what i mean well Definitely i know what you're saying here's in well, terms of intensity yeah what they needed to do is i think again they needed to in order to make sure their bases were covered, they needed to show even from his perspective that it was clearly rape, like to us, the outside observers. But I think they probably were trying to get at what you said of, oh, maybe he didn't actually believe this was a rape. And so that's why you see it's there's slightly more playful elements. Like in his perspective, he comes up and touches her face when she says something about like, oh, you're so exquisite. And Jean de Carouge doesn't know that uh, in the... Uh, Marguerite version, she is still like way far away from him. Like she, anytime he comes close, she's like backing away. Mm -hmm. um, she also like leaves the shoes on the foot of the steps and then like starts walking up. Um, but they still had in both versions where she like ripped her hand away when she went for it. But in the one version, she was like so distraught. She's like running up the stairs with her shoes on and then they fall off. And then in the room itself, when they're going around the table, they go around like a couple more times in Jacques' version to, I think, hint more at like, oh, this could be interpreted as that playful thing. Like with earlier in his perspective, when 
they were fooling around with those girls and that had that same sort of dynamic where they're like running around. Yeah, yeah. Um, whereas in like, the Marguerite yeah. version, there's a very clear, it was just like one time she tried to run away and then she immediately gets grabbed by him. Um, so I think what they were trying to do, and we can talk about that, like this decision to feature it twice, mm-hmm. was that necessary? What effect does it have? I'm imagining for them, they were trying to showcase even just a little bit how in Jacques' mind, which again is twisted and clearly to the outside observer, the whole situation was still rape, but showing how the way he was perceiving things, like there could have been that element of, oh, this is playful. Oh, maybe it is mutual. And she is just doing the necessary thing that a lady must do and pretend to resist and be above um, that adultery. But they still, again, needed to thread the needle and showcase that it was very much an attack that was taking place. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't know. Again, I strongly believe at least one scene, we had to see it once. But seeing it twice, and I can see some of the value in them having the difference, but it is. And I also felt like the second one, it went on longer as well. Like well, was, yeah. that I believe that that was... In like intentional to show that, from her perspective, it was definitely more of a like it like time stopped like right you know but again that's sense. speaking but to him, it was to, just everyday things right and again that's touching on like what effect do you want to have in the audience you want it to be a grueling uncomfortable horrific experience which is what the character is going through and so depicting that in the way they did doing it twice again it's sort of um, brutal in that way there's also the perspective of, oh, if they show it twice, I mean, sometimes victims of attacks like that will replay it over and over and, or get those, um, I don't think that's like the PTSD trying to have episodes. I don't think it was the intentional thing either, but that could be an effect that comes from what they decided to do. Yeah. Um, so yeah. Where do you fall on that scale? I mean, what is your, you're saying it's gratuitous once I've, and twice certainly so yeah i just feel like i just feel like it's excessive i guess it's easier to dismiss it as not being gratuitous and things that are like such intense period pieces like this or things that are completely fictional but i think of things that are like trying to depict real stories that are recent like boys don't cry where it's it is kind of gratuitous at a certain point to show these things where it's like these are things that really happen to people and you're showcasing like the horrible side of it rather than like the person that is happening to, but I suppose it is it is like it is the integral part of the story. Like it is what is happening. I I walked into this knowing that it was probably going to be shown. I just wasn't expect seeing it twice. I suppose was a bit surprising. I do uh, the rape scenes aside. I will say doing it from the different character perspectives i like i had a good time noticing the the individual differences that were happening in their perspectives and trying to figure out how that defined the different characters it, it made like matt damon and adam driver's characters seem very self-centered people yeah who are definitely like in their own world sort of and jody comer is just like the outsider unbiased kind of perspective that is seeing for who they truly are i think that's very interesting uh I will say, watching Matt Damon's section, the very first section, I was a little bored. I was like, this is kind yeah. of slow. I this don't... is kind of choppy. It's kind of weird. And then we get to Ben Affleck's section, the Adam Driver parts. 
And I'm like, oh, I like this a lot because it's showing that everything that we saw in the Matt Damon section was literally his perspective. And he's a weirdo. Like he's like <laughs> that freak that they make fun of because he's so serious about everything. I think that's hilarious. Like when they show him telling off Ben Affleck and he's just like having a temper tantrum. I think it's hilarious. I'm like, this is great because this is in his perspective, in his mind, he's a big hero who's all about honor and stuff. But in reality, he's just a big baby. Like he's justified a little bit, but he's still having a temper tantrum and they're just making fun of him for it. And I think so it's you're fantastic. saying you would be on the side of Jacques Legris and Count Pierre. You'd be uh, on that side of the table laughing at Matt Damon as he tries to get on his horse. Definitely. A hundred percent. I just feel like Matt Damon is just that, that, that guy that like is in every friend group that nobody actually wants to be friends with. And so they just make fun of him every time he comes in. Like, this is exactly who he is. And he plays it to perfection in, in the second part. Like, it's it's fantastic that, 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 that in all honesty, he, that's probably not who he really is. But from Jacques' perspective, that's who he is. And I think that's very, very funny. And he gets played up more as time goes on. But then you see Jodie Comer's perspective. And Jacques Legree is this pompous uh, asshole kind of guy. And Jean de Carouge is just very cruel. And very, very like non whimsical and very mean to his wife, as opposed to being an honorable person. You see the men for who they truly are is just men, and so I don't know. I, I I appreciated seeing the same scenes over and over again, but from different perspectives. I think that was a very fun thing for them to do. Yes, I agree. In the very first part, I was like, oh no, because it, it was just so very... much. It was like Stop. 10 years worth of story being told in like 40 minutes. And I was like, they're going to tell the same 10 years over and over again. This is going to be so much. And I was, there was a section, it was the part where he comes back from Scotland and he like stays there for dinner and then goes to Paris and then comes back for dinner. And I was like, what was the point of him going to Paris? And then realizing that that's when she was assaulted. I was like, okay, mm -hmm. now it makes sense that like, I was upset at first watching it. Cause I thought that him going to Paris was just pointless, but then I realized that there was a point to it. So I was less upset about it. Having learned what had happened while he was gone, because I was like, this is what is going to be important. Yeah. You get story. that, that the hindsight yeah. benefit. And, but I was definitely upset at the moment. I was like, why are they showing me him having dinner? And then he leaves and then comes back and has dinner. Again? I was just what confused. I don't know why you're mad. Yeah. I was, just, I was, just I was like, mad because this whole time it was just like, just him doing things in different scenes. And I'm like, slow, like stop chopping it up so much. Just tell, don't tell everything that happens in these 10 years for a little bit. Tell a couple of things that are important for a lot. It just right. felt like telling so much of this character story. That's why I like the other two sections more importantly, because it was like, it was recounting the moments that were more important for the characters, as opposed to just trying to tell everything that was happening. Right. I don't know if, well, I think the benefit of those later two is that you Chapters, know what happens is that you know what happens yeah. we get the of sense course, of, of the course. timeline whereas in the beginning we didn't we don't have the sense yet of okay we're just gonna jump from these points in time over this certain length of a uh, certain length of time yes um, of course. whereas in the later chapters we know okay we're revisiting this so we know like what's about to happen next and we can anticipate oh snap what's about to come from this yeah, perspective so that's why initially i was like oh boy but then it came into its own uh, with the later chapters and I think yeah. became much more effective and yeah, seeing the, it's fun being able to recognize some of the differences in the, uh, the like tone of certain scenes or mm -hmm. the way the performance happens again, as you said, in Matt Damon's perspective, we see him as this 
guy who's honorable is serving his country at every turn, but he's being wronged by circumstances that are often beyond his control and he's mm-hmm. not being appreciated by his fellow noblemen. And yeah, it just seems like some guy that is being unfairly treated at every turn. Mm-hmm. And then later on in Marguerite's view, we get to see like the reality of some of that, which is still the case. I mean, he's still like affronted by a lot of things that go on, but you also see how he's not this honorable guy in every aspect of his life. Like he's not really carrying through this idea of what he wants to be. He's not putting that into practice in even his domestic life. Um, so that's very interesting. Like one of the major points where you see the differences is when they meet after their initial uh, argument and they're at that like party mm-hmm. and it's Matt Damon who believes he's the one who said, let us not fight when we have the king to serve or something like that. And then in Jacques Legree's perspective, he said it. And then in Marguerite's perspective, you find out neither of them actually said that. Yeah. Um, and so stuff like that is just funny. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. This is very fun to see. So I definitely enjoyed the way that they approached it in that sense. What about the duel itself? Do you think that the duel itself was shot well? I feel like you're going to say no, but I think that it was riveting. My I agree. Oh, nice. I really do. I was <laughs> like so on the edge of my proof. seat. So much. I was, I was, it was tense for me. I was on the edge of my seat. I was really excited because I, because I didn't learn the, the history of these two random me either. people in France. I was, so I was like, I have no idea. Stunned going into it because it really, because I was like, well, if this was a fictional story, we know what's going to happen. Jean de Gruge is going to come through. But I'm like, this is history. And history Anything is unforgiving. Happened. He yeah. literally could have died and she could be burned at the stake. Like, oh, so horrible, I was on a horrible way to die. I know. So I was on I the edge of my seat. Of my seat. I was like, could, could this happen to her? It very easily could. I was so <laughs> excited the entire time because it goes back and forth so much. I know. They did it's a great so job. so exciting. I loved the whole action. Bro, when he world. got kicked by the horse, I was like, oh, oh I was like, oh, he's down. Like, oh. I was like, thank God he's got a helmet on. Or that right? man with that brain damage. <laughs> thank God it hit the half of his helmet that existed. Yeah. Not the other half, which was clear. Yep. <laughs> yeah. Um, well done, but yes, I I was it was very tense that whole way through. I was ooh, I could feel like I was breathing faster. I was like, oh my gosh, what's gonna happen? And thankfully, ooh, and talk about a brutal way for it to happen. He finally pins driver down and he says, confess, and then which is real. Like he did that in the actual event. Like he went confess, and like what Adam Driver says is what he replied with. Bro, history is amazing. It is. But in history, he stabs him in the neck. But in this movie, he stabs him through the mouth, which I think which is, is kind of cooler. Beautiful. Oh, my. Yeah. yeah, the way he kicked him into it, which yeah. was reminiscent of that one other scene was really brutal where he, like, kicked some dude and then dropped him on the sword. Yeah. That the action great. scenes in this one, they're, it's still hard to tell what's going on in the same way that Gladiator is. But I'm more forgiving of it because of the kind of time period that it is is it's a huge battle between all these people in like the middle of France or Scotland or wherever they are. Whereas gladiator is, is sometimes it is just one-on-one and it's like, if it's one-on-one, it shouldn't be this hard to follow. Mm-hmm. But in, in this, it's like a giant battle between all of these French people. Like it reminds me of the battle of the bastards in game of Thrones. It's like, yeah. uh, it's meant to be dizzying in, in some way. So I am more forgiving of it here and they are short and sweet. 
compared to how some of the gladiator scenes are like they're very quick to it but then the last duel comes up and it's like oh it's awesome it was so cool i was, loved it the one and then they back. drag they, they drag adam driver's body through the street and <laughs> string him up i know as they approach uh what is it notre dame mm-hmm. so cool yeah the one grab i had with the duel itself mm-hmm. was the way that they would do the reaction shots of the people that are observing it when it was on jody comer that was great yeah when it was on ben affleck that was mostly good like when the fly was there yeah, i was exactly. like okay interesting and he's swatting it away so you can see it but when they went to the king in some of the other ones and he just was like over zealous about it and like happy and giddy i felt like that cut some of the tension that was secured by everything else that was going on i need to learn more about king what was it charles king yeah. charles i need to learn more about him because i think he was a crazy guy like crazy but they Apparently, don't show it that much because it's literally not his it's not his story of course so they don't yeah. really show it but i think the performance is accurate to how he probably would have been in that moment i think so he was I, a young crazy king i think a la, uh what's his name from game of thrones joffrey joffrey yeah a la joffrey yeah, definitely a lot of those vibes. I think showing more restraint and just not like showing a reaction shot from him being giddy with it mm-hmm. would have better served the story and kept it really tense. Because you can't go from Jodie Comer literally like contemplating the death She's of going to be burned her alive. life and her child and then go to some kid that's like smiling with it was definitely odd. A goofy look on his face. So yeah. But dude, every hit that happened, it it like you could feel it. It mm. was heavy. It was real. Mm. It was awesome. I would say very well done to Ridley Scott for how he filmed that final scene. Indeed, indeed. Uh, other things I really like the ending as well, where you see him, John, like going through the city, and he's finally appreciated. Yeah. And then you see behind him. Jodie Comer's Marguerite is like still not she's happy she's everything's happened like she's relieved for sure but she's not necessarily happy about that and so she's like there's no I mean she still has to deal with the attack that happened now she's gonna raise a child but again it was so interesting to see the differences in how they reacted to it because probably the best thing that happened to Jean de Carouge is his wife getting raped because he was able to off his enemy and then finally get the admiration of the people. And then you also see that when they were like getting cheered immediately. And then he's like showing her off and she's like, this is not like, I'm not trying to get applauded by people for happening to survive. Um, So I thought that was a very interesting, effective and somber ending to the whole situation. But I mean, she got her child, which also was crazy. That is most likely Jacques Legree's, kid that she gave birth to so oh that's insane i also the one other point is the way that they tried to make it somewhat timely by including some of the things like ben affleck saying deny 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 which is something trump was quoted as saying um and then another thing where it was you can't get pregnant from rapes or something like that someone had said (laughs) he said it's just science um, which some other congressman had said something similar to that. Not the, it's just science, but something like legitimate rape uh, can't result in conception because yeah, the body has ways that, of preventing that whole, and it's not pleasurable. 
dude her whole perspective her story part from after when she was assaulted to when to right before the duel is just so hard to watch i mean including the assault let me say mm-hmm. from when she's assaulted all the way to the duel it's just so hard to watch because it's just people shitting on her nonstop, including matt damon's character dude when when she finally tells him and he gets super angry and then he's like now he must have sex because jack jacques Legree cannot be the last person to have laid with you dude it's so oh it is so hard to watch it's very callous yeah and it's interesting that again even in the first uh perspective when he's told that we see him immediately be like oh are you telling me the truth and being like somewhat aggressive with it yeah but he's still like like, that they included it well but i like though that even in both of their perspectives you still see the negatives of them Uh, Mm. but then of course it's very much toned up when you see it from but to them at this time period it is positive like like for him he's like of course i should be upset my wife was laid with another man like rape or not like i'd be upset like that's what the perspective was at the time so of course mm-hmm. in his perspective he's still the hero in in the first chapter like he of course he's upset but then he like calms his nerves because he's a master of his emotions and is able to side with his wife because he's mature so he still well, is like the hero of his story but even in that first perspective and you see it more intensely in the third perspective is that he sees it as a slight against him ultimately like he had said something like oh why is this man the bane of my existence or something to that effect yeah like he saw it um the he least said, like, of why must concern this man ruin everything i have yeah was the impact on marguerite and more so the way that it is going to damage his pride mm-hmm. and his reputation and whatnot um, yeah yeah I think we touched on about everything. Mm-hmm. Is there How any would you of your last, the last No, I got nothing. That's yeah, I loved it all. I love Ben Affleck to be honest. I think he was he great in this. So much fun in this for sure. He, he had got so the much blonde fun. wig, and blonde beard, and he's telling Adam Driver to take his pants off. Laying with four naked women. women. Yeah. Yeah. He was having it. No wonder he picked that role. He wrote it right. out and he was like, This <laughs> this is the role to have in this movie. If he was Jock Legree, he'd be the one getting murdered and dragged through the streets. I, I don't think he wanted. I don't think he wanted that. As much as I would have loved to see Matt Damon and Ben Affleck in full night garb, just attack each other for fifteen minutes, that yeah. would have been kind of fun to see. Because I just know they're best friends in real life, which just kind of would have been fun to watch. But I'm okay with it being Adam Driver. Adam Driver did a kick-ass job in this movie. He did, being, being the charming guy turned villain, for sure. Uh, but yeah, again, I like that whole part of them being the frat knights. This is so funny. I've been drinking a whole bunch. Um, But yeah, I'm going to give it four medieval bowl cuts out of five. I'm going to give it the same. I agree with you. I'm going to give it four, which is a lot higher than I thought I'd be giving it. Having seen the trailer, I was like, this is not, I'm not going to enjoy it. I remember dreading going to the theater because I was like, this isn't going to be a good time. I'd <laughs> oh rather, God. it's two and a half hours long. I'd rather be at home or watching. Like in watching some, it. it definitely felt a lot shorter. Yeah. feel it, but. Like, like Matt Damon, to... like the very beginning, the first chapter was definitely sluggish a bit. But once we got to the second chapter, it was nonstop. Like, I was, in like, it, I was yeah. into it, yeah. But definitely a, a good, a fun time in, in a way. <laughs> Definitely had a lot not of fun, but definitely engaging for sure. I mean, I don't know. I had fun watching Matt Damon. I mean, uh, Adam Driver and Ben Affleck. Fun. Yeah, them fun. just betting women. That was fun to watch them do. Bro, when he that was messed up his calculations and threw it yeah. down. He was like, sorry. Watching Matt, dude, Matt Damon did such a good job doing the temper tantrums. I think that sure. was great. Like, he, he owned that part. Like, he was able to control it as being like the stern, but 
strong leader in the first part and then the whiny baby in the second part and then just the 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 bridge in the middle of the two of just the asshole who's there in the third one like he did a very good job balancing them out but yeah i had a fun time i also love in his in his perspective we barely see ben affleck at all like we see him like one or two scenes and he barely says anything and then we get to the Jacques Lucre perspective, who's actually there with Pierre. And we find out Pierre is just a playboy. And this is <laughs> not what I expected at all. I thought he was going to be a lot more serious from the whole first 40 minutes of the movie. And he just wasn't. I loved it. It was a good change of pace. For sure. All right. So four to five for The Last Duel. Ridley Scott's newest film. It did not do well at the box office. so Unfortunately. Go support it. Go see it. Yeah. Anyway. We have our final bit to talk about, our movie of the week, which is another Ridley Scott film, Blade Runner, the final cut. It is directed by Ridley Scott, of course, is what we're talking about. It was written by Hampton Fancher and David Webb Peoples. You may know David Webb Peoples from things like Unforgiven and... Fuck, what's the other movie he wrote? Fuck. Oh, 12 Monkeys with Bruce Willis and Brad Pitt. Brad Pitt's first nomination. Yeah, he wrote that too. It's also starring Harrison Ford, Rudger Hauer, Sean Young, Edward James Olmos, Daryl Hannah, and M. Emmett Walsh, who's one of my favorite actors. It was the production design, which is flawless, was done by Lawrence G. Paul, who really did not much else. He did Back to the Future and Romance in the Stone, where two other big movies, and then just a bunch of sequels to bigger movies. Like he did Beverly Hills Cop 2 and uh, a bunch of Predator 2, a bunch of sequels. Anyway, Blade Runner is a fantastic movie. It is spellbinding. It is magnificent. It's violent. It's awesome. It's philosophical. It's based on the Philip K. Dick short story, Do Androids Dream of Electronic Sheep, which is a great title. And it's just... Yes. <laughs> it's just magnificent. It, it, trying to determine the cause of free will, determine creator and createe, that balance... It's got Harrison Ford as something called a Blade Runner. Like, what a cool name. Just hunting down androids and deactivating, decommissioning them. So badass. The whole testing thing in the beginning is super cool where he tests Sean Young. I just, I remember my perspective of this movie was I watched it the first time and I stopped halfway through because I just didn't like it. And then I watched it the second time and I was able to get through the whole thing. I just didn't like it again. (laughs) Then I watched it the third time and I got all the way through. And I loved it. I absolutely loved it. The more times you watch this movie, the more you'll like it. I, I think that's You're, very true. Everybody I've met has never liked it the first time they watch it. But <laughs> the more times they watch it, the more they like it. It takes a few viewings to get used to. I would say the same about Mulholland Drive, which is a David Lynch movie. It's, it's just one of those movies that just takes you a while to get into. But the production design is phenomenal. The story is phenomenal. It's so cerebral. It's so intelligent. It's so cool. I just love this movie. Yeah, as you said, it is absolutely spellbinding. It is dazzling. I mean, this is the quintessential cyberpunk aesthetic, the atmosphere, the mood that is created by Lee Scott and the art director and the production designer. All those hands coming together to create this extremely immersive film. I mean, it was revolutionary at the time and has obviously influenced so much of sci-fi since then especially the cyberpunk subgenre of sci-fi. So, I mean, every single shot in this film is just immaculate. Beautiful. The, the rain slick streets and the fog, so much fog, but it's beautiful. 
um, the neon lights on all the architecture, the the searchlights that are coming down from that like airship. The just big sweeping shots of the city that are it's like it's a miniature, but it looks magnificent because mm-hmm. they've like photocopied in shots of like big explosions to like show like the industrialization of it all. It's just so such a strongly unique vision of future LA as mm-hmm. opposed to anything else that we had seen up until that point. Like it was distinct and now it's been copied a lot, but at the time this was unique and distinct and awesome. Even now it's still like so striking, even though it's been yeah. used as the inspiration for so much. I mean, like the Terrell mm-hmm. building and all the shots we see of that. Oh, so cool. I mean, it's just amazing. And even seeing like the little elevators moving up it as you're like pushing in into the shot as Harrison Ford is uh, driving to it. It's just great. Just incredible. And he does Absolutely. a lot of that stuff where he just lingers on shots, even when the characters are done talking, just so we can get more of the sense of this world. Like his world building in it is amazing. It does the same thing. Like there's a shot of the tunnel, which again could have been cut out. Like there's no um, obvious purpose to it, but things like that. Little things like that are just so helpful in making this film so immersive, so mesmerizing. Mm-hmm. Like I watched, when I was watching, I had to split it into two because I needed to go to bed and wake up early the next day. Yeah. But I kept like not wanting to pause it because I was just entranced. I was so mesmerized mm-hmm. by it. Um, and so, yeah, the look of it is absolutely beautiful. Um, and the the philosophical side of it, as you said, cerebral elements i do appreciate um for me i think i don't know i think it will need one more watch to fully cement itself as like just an absolute masterpiece um because again i think this was like my third time watching it. i don't think my first time was ever very meaningful and the second time i was like sort of paying attention to engaged but i think i was also probably getting sidetracked this time was definitely fully entranced by it but there are some issues with like the story that is what's keeping it from being like just that upper top-notch level um like the whole bit about him harrison's horror character in the later parts like he's i mean good for him for like leading into this role but when you start out, you expect him to be that like, really strong, I mean, capable character that's able to go through and handle all these um, replicants and whatnot. And then over the course of it, like he loses a lot, loses a lot of battles, gets wrecked a lot. And you see this like fear, like he's always scared in the later scenes. And I like that if I understood what they were going for with it. Well, these... If replicants. Yeah. These replicants are the more dangerous of the replicants. And yes, he's like the primo Blade Runner. That's why they bring him out of retirement. But I think the whole point is that we stand nothing compared to these Andro- these replicants. Like they are the ultimate force of power. They are the next step of evolution. We stand we are nothing to compared to them. And the only thing that keeps them from taking over is that they die in five years. They have a shelf life. And that's what happens at the end of the movie is that like at the end of the at the end of it all, Rugger Hauer realizes that he's about to die 
And instead of using those last moments to kill Harrison Ford, he just reminisces about his life, about his purpose, about his free will, and then just dies because he realizes that they will never be able to stand up to human power unless they can defeat their mortality and become the immortal, all-powerful next step in evolution. Mm-hmm. That like, is the what problem. Is that, with, what does that reflect on Harrison's Ford character, though? Like, now I'm the last human. of you. What is the lesson here? Well, is that he we human? are not the final step in evolution. Well, that is a good <laughs> question. Is he human or is he not? Because that's like thing a thing they brought up a lot in Blade Runner. Is like, is that him? Who right. knows? I think he. I think the ultimate answer is that yes, he's human. And well, because Ridley Scott would disagree. He says he's a replicant, and I'm just saying really? either way, there's still problems in the way they go about it. Because if he is uh, a replicant, I mean, he's we already he's weak bitch compared to the other ones. But I think what they're trying to show is. Like, oh, are you human? Are those replicants? Is um, Roy Batty, is he human? Um, and so in that final thing where he's choosing to be merciful and then he's reminiscing on his past and lamenting the fact that, oh, he's going to perish and not going to be able to live out the rest of his memories or even remembering those memories, that's that would be the statement saying, oh, yes, these people are human. Like, look at all the emotion that's being expressed there. But we like that lesson or that message would fall flat if Harrison Ford is the bloody replicant because we've already seen him go through all that stuff. He's already been empathetic towards Rachel when he tells her that she's a replicant and she's like saddened by it. And then he tries to uh, uno reverse it and be like, no, 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 I was just joking. You're not a replicant. Go home. You'll be fine. Um, We see that. We see again, multiple times we see him in fear of his life. Like when, I forget what his name was, but the one with the goatee, the one that was in the initial... Edward James Olmos. Sure. The... Yeah, wait, wait, wait. Are you talking about the, the replicant? Well, the replicant who was the big in the guy? very initial testing. Yeah, the big guy. Sure, yes. Yeah, I don't remember his name either, okay. but I know exactly who you're talking about. Yeah, when he was about to like kill him, like you saw the fear on his face, and he was only saved by Rachel and whatnot. So like we already see if he is a replicant. Like we already understand that lesson of like, oh, there is humanity in there and it's more complex and just like being a replicant and not um, being naturally or organically created. Um, but then again, if he's human, I still feel like there's issues in again, raising the whole fact about the replicant and then having the whole unicorn thing. Why would that be happening if he's human or is that just related to um, him understanding that there could be the potential for Henry Replicant, but now he knows it doesn't really matter. He just kind of sees his own life and use the free will and live out whatever time he has, if it's a couple years or whatever. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I still need to like untangle all of that and make the thematic, like philosophical underpinnings of this film yeah, I like organized it. in order to but, truly love it. Yeah. But it is so visually just dancing, spellbinding, as we said, that it's incredible even if you like can't understand much of the stuff that's going on there or you aren't compelled by it like as i think most people are in the first viewings it is Mm. so visually stunning that it just already is a classic and for that alone i think from my perspective i think the best way to view it is that we don't know and he doesn't know and that's what's important is like we are approaching this from the perspective of there is no clear answer to whether he's a replicant or not 
And the fact that we don't know and the fact that he doesn't know is what is informing the story rather than there being one answer. As a, it's like Schrodinger's cat. It's like There's no way of knowing until he dies from his shelf life ending. And we don't see that. And I think Blade Runner 2049 to me is kind of like the indication that he's a person because he didn't die. He's an old man now. He grew out of his days. He grew up. He grew old. I feel like that is to me the answer to that question that he found out he's a human Rachel was a replicant. She died, but they were able to produce a, a child, an offspring from sexual reproduction, as opposed to industrial manufacture. That's the whole thing for Blade Runner twenty forty nine. For just Blade Runner, just looking at the perspective of we don't know, just as his own single entity, I think that's important for him learning that lesson. Watching Rutger Hauer's character is he's like, oh, he's realizing that these replicants are so close to human. Like that's the line is that so close to human you can't tell the difference is like him questioning whether he that gives him that implication to question whether he is a replicant or not because if they don't know how would he know and so he just makes that end decision to run away is to live his life as if he was one and that he could die at any moment right that his free will may not be as free as he thinks it is but he will live his life how he chooses to to the best of his abilities Anyway, it's that's the movie of the week. Go watch Blade Runner. <laughs> Wait, what's your out of five electric sheep? I was gonna ask you the same thing. Uh, I will give it again because visually it is just so stunning. It is so immersive. It's one of the best in that sense that I've ever seen. Uh, and so I'm still I'm gonna give it the benefit of the doubt that that is gonna end up making sense at some point. All that. The more you watch the philosophical it stuff and thematic, thematic stuff, I'm sure it will. Which is why, again, it's like when you say there's movies that you need to watch it again to understand, like I feel like this is the poster child for it. Because mm-hmm. you're right, I've heard many times where people are like, oh, first watch, it didn't really make sense, wasn't really engaged in it. But upon multiple viewings, it really does come into focus. I'm going to give it 4.5, electronic cheap out of 5. Mm-hmm. I'm going to give it a full 5, just because I think I've seen it enough times to like, that's what I love about this movie is that it is so intelligent and so philosophical that you have to really sit and think about it. And you really have to pay attention and comprehend it in order to have any kind of enjoyment out of it. Otherwise, it's boring or dull or long or complicated. You really have to exercise your brain. And that's how, what I love about it, as opposed to something like Alien, where it's a horror movie and you can just sit and have a good time, which is still great in its own reasons. I feel like Blade Runner is like his magnus opus because it's just so intelligent and so thought provoking in so many ways and the more you watch it just the more it like peels away at the layers of what you think about free will and that has a lot to do with philip k dick being such a a fantastic sci-fi writer and so intelligent and a lot to do with really scott's upbringing with things like hg wells who was such an intelligent writer and all these other different sci-fi films that made him think made him want to make the audience think which i think is so intelligent so incredible so shout out to ridley scott for making being the homeboy making us think (laughs) being a, a true one, being a real hero there. So five out of five electronic sheep for me. All right. So just to recap, Gladiator, I gave it a 4.5. You gave it a three. The Last Duel, we each gave a four. And Blade Runner, I gave 4.5. And you gave a full five. Yes, indeed. Anyway, that is all the time we have. If you'd like to give your thoughts on the show or make suggestions for the movie of the week, you can email us at show at gmail.com. Our main title theme of the show is Sundown by Joseph McDade. We will be coming back to Ridley Scott in a couple weeks to discuss some more of his movies in the second part of our director's analysis on him. 
But next week coming up is Dune. Dune. So go see Dune this weekend so you're ready for our conversation about it. We're very excited. We're very anticipatory to talk about Dune. I'm I'm pumped. I'm ready. I'm excited. I'm going to try and play devil's advocate and try and not like it. I'm just kidding. <laughs> I'm sure I'll love it. Anyway, go see Dune this weekend. Listen to our talk next week about Dune. Have a good rest of your week. Goodbye. Thank you.